Our New Testament reading comes from Acts 28, 11 through 31. Three months later, we set sail on a ship that had wintered at the island, an Alexandrian ship with the twin brothers as its figurehead. We put in at Syracuse and stayed there for three days. Then we weighed anchor and came to Regium. After one day there, was a, there, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Pataeli. There we found believers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. The believers from there, when they heard of us, came as far as the Forum of Apius and Three Taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. When we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. Three days later, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. When they had assembled, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our ancestors, yet I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. When they had examined me, the Romans wanted to release me because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But when the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to the emperor, even though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is for the sake of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. They replied, we have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken anything evil about you. But we would like to hear from you what you think, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. After they had set a day to meet with him, they came to him at his lodgings in great numbers. From morning until evening, he explained the matter to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Some were convinced by what he had said, while others refused to believe. So they disagreed with each other, and as they were leaving, Paul made one further statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your ancestors through the prophet Isaiah, go to this people and say, you will indeed listen, but never understand, and you will indeed look, but never perceive. For this, people's hearts have grown dull, and their ears are hard of hearing, and they have shut their eyes, so that they might not look with their eyes, or listen with their ears, and understand with their heart in turn, and I would heal them. Let it be known to you then that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years on, at his own expense, and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ, with all boldness and without hindrance. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our gospel reading comes from Luke 24, 44 through 49. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, O Lord. Then Jesus said to his disciples, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And see, I am sending upon you what my Father promised, so stay here in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that um, the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts this morning 
would be pleasing and acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So this week we uh, at last bring our uh, study of Acts to a close. And throughout this study of Acts, um, from the spring, summer, into the fall, we've been focusing on this question of like, what is the nature and the mission of God's kingdom as it shows up on the scene in the book of Acts? Um, especially we've seen ways in which this kingdom is contrasted with the other kingdoms that are out there, the kingdoms that many of the Jewish people were looking for, that the kingdom of Caesar and in the culmination of the story here in Rome, we begin to see Luke's final answer to these questions. But before we get there, we need to sketch some of the story of how we get to Rome, because um, we've, we've skipped over some of that, that part in our, in our series. Um, last week, we saw how Paul wound up um, arrested by the Roman authorities, where there is this disturbance in the temple. Um, and the Romans come and they arrest Paul because he is the center of this disturbance. Um, and then there are these accusations at the Jewish leaders level that he is undermining the social fabric, that he is a danger to the empire. And so the Romans, they take, they take Paul and they take him to, from Jerusalem down to Caesarea, which is on the coast. And there, Paul is interrogated as the governor tries to get to the heart of this question of what's going on here. Um, but the governor becomes kind of frustrated because it seems clear that what's happening here is not Paul being a danger to the empire, but it's this kind of intra-Jewish debate. Uh, and so Paul, the governor doesn't know quite what to do with Paul, and so Paul just sits there for two whole years, waiting and waiting for his case to be resolved. And then finally, after two years, a new governor comes, the case is revived, and Paul, as we've seen him do uh, a number of times throughout the book of Acts, decides that he's going to play the citizenship card again. So Paul is a Roman citizen, and every Roman citizen has as their right the ability to appeal to Caesar to decide their case. So Caesar's kind of like the Supreme Court, right? He's like the highest court of appeals in the empire. And Paul, as a Roman citizen, says, Roman citizen says, I appeal to Caesar. And so the part of the book of Acts that we're skipping over here a bit is where Paul is then taken by ship, where he sails across the Mediterranean. It's this very um, colorful adventure um, to read. Um, there is a storm, a shipwreck, poisonous stakes. Um, but God sees him and the crew safely through. And here now, um, in this final chapter, in chapter 28, Paul has arrived at Rome. Um, he lands um, in Petoli, which is somewhere around uh, Naples in the southern Italy. He goes up the Roman road system, and then he comes to the city itself, the heart of the very empire. Now, Rome is a metropolis, right? Uh, as the capital, it's the largest city in the empire with approximately one million people, which is gigantic for that time in history. And it's, it's a city that is like cosmopolitan. It's, it's like London or like New York City that has drawn people from all across the empire in. And so when Paul arrives there, there is a Jewish community, some of whom have already become followers of Jesus that meet him and welcome him as he comes. And then he settles in Rome um, under house arrest. Um, and Paul kind of then meets with this other members of the Jewish diaspora community. 
And they're not as convinced by Paul. They're not as convinced by this message of the kingdom that he has been preaching, that sees Jesus as the culmination of Israel's story. And so as the action moves to Rome, instead of the trial before Caesar that we might be expecting, we actually get another replay of this intra-Jewish debate between Paul and the religious leaders over whether Jesus is actually the fulfillment of Israel's story and what that means. And so the debate here, it plays out much like we've seen before. Some of the Jews are persuaded by Paul, others not so much. This time, however, um, there is a note of finality to the debate. So as they're departing, Paul uh, sends one final parting shot at them, and he quotes from Isaiah 6, saying, The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your ancestors through the prophet Isaiah, Go to this people and say, You will indeed listen, but never understand. You will indeed look, but never perceive. For these people's heart has grown dull, and their ears are hard of hearing, and they have shut their eyes. Otherwise, they might look with their eyes and listen with their ears and understand with their hearts in turn, and I would heal them. So that's kind of a harsh statement by Paul, right? Um, this note it, seemingly of rejection. Um, this passage from Isaiah 6 is, is actually one of the more frequent passages cited in the New Testament. Um, Jesus himself uses it um, several times in his opposition to the Pharisees. And the way that, G that Paul uses it is very similar to the way that Jesus is, uses it, which is to say that just as the just as the people in the Old Testament, the religious authorities rejected the prophets, so now the successors to those religious authorities in the first century have rejected God's Messiah, Jesus. And the larger context of Isaiah 6 is the idea that because God's people have rejected God, so God rejects them. And so we are left with only this small faithful remnant of people that are still following God faithfully. This might seem to be a very weird way for Luke to bring the book of Acts to a close with this note of redemption, rejection. And it has to be said, right, that the Christians have often been tempted to lash onto these words of rejection and stop the story right there. Um, Chris mentioned last week how often um, passages like these were twisted uh, in later centuries of the church in a way that is anti-Semitic, um, in a way that's actually contrary to the movement of Acts as a whole. But we can go even further and we can say that Christians have often leaned into the language of rejection and have adopted this identity of being God's like faithful chosen few um, against a godless world that God's rejected. I know certainly like I've heard Christians uh, in my time in churches that have like gone to something like Isaiah 6 and defended an idea very much like this. Um, I mentioned this story a couple sermons ago that I preached. Um, in the church that I grew up in, there was this guy named Ken who would come to church every Sunday and uh, Ken would tell you to your face how he was one of only three righteous people left on earth. And the implication is you're probably not one of those three, right? <laughs> so, you know, the odds are against you. And that's kind of an extreme example, right? But it's an extreme example of a general tendency that Christians can sometimes have, which is that we want to define ourselves in opposition to other people, to this rejected other. Um, so, for, for instance, we've just come through an election cycle, which, like, 
so many election cycles these days has been very contentious. And you have some Christians, right, that want to exclude other people from the circle because of how they vote or the politicians that they support or the policies that they support, right? Or maybe there's that like, group of people that we want to write off as being um, unreachable or unredeemable. You know, maybe for some, it's the woke liberals. Maybe for other, it's kind of the MAGA enthusiasts. Whatever the outgroup is that we kind of want to stamp rejected on, right? But this is actually to get the biblical story completely wrong. It's to get it backwards. Because Paul actually quotes Isaiah 6 here not to say, I am the faithful one, you are rejected, but rather he's citing it against those who would see themselves as the faithful and chosen few in the world and amidst a world that God has rejected. And so it's not, uh, it's not about people who are rejected, rather it is about a rejection of the mentality of rejection itself. The reality is, is that a small faithful two, few is never the last word in scripture. Um, after the portion of Isaiah 6 that Paul quotes here, Isaiah goes on to say that God will preserve a stump or a holy seed and promises that the kind of hacked down, hollowed stump will flourish once again. And then a few chapters later in Isaiah 11, we get that passage that we hear quoted so often at Christmas time. There shall come forth from a shoot, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Right? And this passage, as we, as we read it around Christmas time, we read it in light of Jesus Christ. And we read it in the sense that God's chosen, God's righteous one, right, is not a select group of people, but the special chosen person is Jesus Christ himself. And Jesus has come into the world not to preserve a righteous remnant or a select few, but to make the stump of Jesse grow once again and to watch it flourish and to extend its branches into all the world. And so ultimately, the, the book of Isaiah goes on to foretell that the, the biblical story ends with growth of God's people into a tremendous multitude, a multitude that includes even foreigners and God's former enemies in their midst. And so what sounds like a statement of exclusion on the lips of Paul is actually the opposite. And it's while, right after he utters these words, he says that I will go to the Gentiles. They will listen to the word of God's salvation. And so what's being rejected here is not a group of people. What's being rejected here is an attitude where preser preserving our group identity trumps the mission of God to extend his kingdom to the ends of the earth. There is nothing in the biblical story, right, that teaches us that what God wants is a small, select group of people. At every point, whether it's in God's promise to Abraham or to the vision and revelation of the saints in heaven, what we see is that God does not have a remnant but a multitude, one where there is no longer Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. And so fittingly, Luke draws the story of Acts to conclusion in Rome, in the capital of a multi-ethnic empire. But curiously, though, um, the ending feels a little anticlimactic to us, right? Um, Acts doesn't tell us what happens to Paul. You know, is Paul, is he put on trial? Is he martyred? Is he vindicated? Does he go on further missionary journeys? Luke doesn't tell us. 
Instead, the story concludes with a period of waiting, where Paul is yet again waiting for another two years under house arrest in Rome. But if this ending feels a little unsatisfying to us, um, maybe it's because we've actually misidentified who the main character of Acts is. Um, I think Luke is teaching us here that the main character of Acts, it's not, Paul is not one of the apostles, but it's the gospel of the kingdom itself. He's not trying to give us a biography of Paul, but rather the story of how the gospel has gone from the periphery of the empire in Palestine into the very heart of the empire in Rome itself. And so this leads us to the question, right? What is Rome? Um, why has Luke concluded his story here? If the Jewish leaders, right, thought that smaller is better, the Romans thought that bigger was better. Right? Um, Rome considered itself to be the universal empire um, under the lordship of Caesar, who is the one who has brought peace to the nations. That's why we call this period the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. If you had a chance to come to Common Table last week, you had Cindy gave this really wonderful overview of the historical period that leads up to the Gospels, to the Book of Acts, and the story that she tells, right, is one that kind of begins 300 years earlier, where you have Alexander the Great, who goes and he conquers this vast world empire by the age of 30. But then by the age of 32, he dies suddenly, and that empire fragments apart into all of these little different competing kingdoms. So, like, the period is kind of this, like, like Game of Thrones sort of era, right, where, like, everyone is vying to, like, pick up the pieces of Alexander's empire, and it's one of continual war and instability until Rome enters the picture, right? Rome comes onto the scene, and it comes in, and through military force, it picks up the pieces of Alexander's Alexander's empire and establishes its own empire across the whole world. We spent some time um, in the book of Acts talking about how the story of Jesus interacts, intersects with the Jews' own story of the Old Testament. But the Romans, they have their own story too, right? They have their own gods, their own mythology, and the Romans believed the divine providence had been directing history to the establishment of their empire as the culmination of history. By the favor of the gods, they were the ones that brought order to the world. And so Caesar is the, Lord's, is the world's savior. Um, Caesars, in fact, they were considered upon death to actually ascend to the divine realm, to become gods. And so you have this, this cult, this worship of Caesar that is mandated across the empire. Um, archaeologists, they, they've actually uncovered um, an inscription um, that actually speaks of the gospel or the good news of Caesar. The good news being that Caesar, whom the inscription describes as God and Savior, has brought peace through military conquest. But now, arriving on the scene in Rome itself is a very different kingdom, right? One that aspires to be a universal empire of a very different kind. And this universal kingdom has as its Lord, not Caesar, but Jesus. And this Lord has his own gospel to be proclaimed, that he is the true God and savior of the world, and that the manner in which he establishes his kingdom is diametrically opposed to the way of Rome. 
So Rome, they aspired to be this vast multi-ethnic empire, but their method of achieving that was conquest, was violence, was force. Um, Tacitus, who's a Roman history, but one who is critical of the empire, he argues that behind the imperial propaganda was an ugly reality. The Romans, they plunder, they slaughter, and they steal, he writes. This they falsely name empire, and where they make a wasteland, they call it peace. But the kind of peace that Jesus ushers in is not a wasteland of conquest. It is not formed by conquering, but by crucifixion. And this means that the unity of Jesus' kingdom is not established through force, but through love, the self-sacrificial love of Jesus. Now, it's likely that um, while Paul is in Rome, um, he writes his epistle to the Ephesians, um, which is a very interesting letter to read if you think about it as being written in the context of Rome. And so in Philippians 2, Paul writes a vision of unity that is very different than the one that Rome is trying to stamp on the world. One where people do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but the interests of others. You know, there's nothing more unappealing or grotesque to the Romans than humility. And there's nothing more characteristic of Caesar, whether Julius or Augustus or whoever, than selfish ambition, right? But the kingdom of the Lord has a very different mentality, one with a Lord who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so the Christian gospel, as it arrives in Rome, is a subversive one. It's one that fundamentally undermines Rome's mythology of empire and puts in its place a very different vision of human unity and human flourishing, one that has the virtue of charity, not force at its center. As one representative of the empire exclaimed earlier in Acts, it is a mo movement that threatens to turn the Roman world upside down and to utterly transform its value system. And here, that world-upturning kingdom has arrived at the very seat of Caesar himself in Rome. Yet again, as we said, that, that, that arrival looks very anticlimactic, doesn't? Uh, because Paul doesn't arrive in Rome in triumph um, like a Caesar. He doesn't even arrive in Rome as a free man. He arrives in Rome as a prisoner of the empire. And we don't get Paul's vindication or even a martyrdom or some kind of dramatic ending that might feel more satisfying to us, that might feel more triumphant. But I think the low-key ending to Acts, one that has Paul under house arrest but faithfully preaching and teaching the gospel of the kingdom, is something that I think is intentional. Uh, because the kingdom advances in ways that are far more subtle than we expect. Ways that are more attuned to the operation of a kingdom that works according to the logic of the cross. In his commentary on Acts, uh, Willie, Willie Jennings James writes that the arrival of the kingdom means the end of empire, not through sedition, but through resurrection. The kingdom does not seek violence. It doesn't seek to uproot, to destroy, or to overthrow, but rather in the wasteland of Rome's empire to plant the seeds of new life.
Uh, the theologian Miroslav Wolf, he, he calls this movement of the kingdom in the world, uh, this, it's soft difference. Soft because the difference of the kingdom is not forceful. It's not about bulldozing old systems in the world to erect new ones of our own making. The kingdom does not enact a hostile takeover from without. It does not orchestrate regime change in the empire. Instead, Wolf argues, the mission of Christians fundamentally takes the form of witness and invitation. They seek to win others without pressure, without manipulation, and sometimes, he writes, without even a word. And I think it's precisely this kind of soft difference that we see Paul embracing in the final chapter of, of Acts here. Um, ending empire not through sedition, but through resurrection. Paul is indeed a prisoner of the empire, but Paul, living according to the pattern of the cross and resurrection, turns that captivity into an opportunity to extend hospitality to his very captors. And so Paul, in Rome, under house arrest, he welcomes people from the capital in, sharing with them the good news of the kingdom of Jesus, a very different kingdom than the one that they live under. And the thing is that this is actually like incredibly successful. And we can see this from, from Paul's own letter to the Philippians, that, that through Paul's faithful presence in Rome, that the gospel has reached um, powerful places like the Praetorian Guard or the household of Caesar itself. And so as we end our time in Acts this morning, Let's ask the question, what does the conclusion of the book of Acts mean for the church in our present moment? And I want to suggest that there's no neat conclusion or note of finality to the book of Acts because the story hasn't concluded, right? It ends with Paul waiting in Rome, and it, the story continues with a season of waiting, a waiting for God's kingdom to arrive in full. And so the book of Acts leaves things intentionally open-ended because the story of the kingdom has not ended, but carries on with us. And if we were to live out the story of Acts in our own life together, I think that there are two, two things that are particularly important for us today. Um, and the first is simply that Acts is calling us to live in hope and not in fear. We live in an era um, that is often filled with anxiety, filled with fear. Uh, particularly in the church, as we kind of look around and we see that people in the church are disaffiliating at record numbers. Um, the U.S. has become a much more secular country over the last two decades, right? And one reaction to this secularization is to adopt a mentality of fear, to retreat into the righteous remnant mentality, uh, to lament the hard-heartedness of the world around us, and to kind of focus on, like, shoring up and preserving like our own purity, right? Um, but God's kingdom does not give us the option to retreat. We are not to write off mission and focus on our own survival. The church doesn't survive by focusing on survival. It survives by focusing on mission. And when we neglect its calling to seek after others, perhaps even writing whole groups of people off, it's actually then the church stagnates and dies. And so this isn't a call to naive optimism, to turning a blind eye to the challenges that face us. Um, it's not blind to the reality that, that the work of the kingdom will be slow and painful at times. 
Yet we are called to step forward in hope, trusting in God's promise that the work of our hands will be fruitful if we are faithful. And then secondly, I think it's a calling that in our mission, we are to be cognizant of how the strategies of the kingdom are different from the strategies of Caesar. We are to resist the lore of empire building, to resort to force to build the kingdom. Right? There's, this, there's a temptation to reach to power politics, for example. Um, where there are left-wing versions of empire building or right-wing versions of empire building, right? Like the woke empire, like the Christian nationalist empire. And these are tempting because when we look at the chaos of the world around us, at the injustice or the accelerating secularism, we want to grasp after power, to control, to like roam, to conquer the chaos and bring order. But as Christians, we are not called to live lives of control and manipulation, but lives of faithful presence. Um, in his Lord of the Rings trilogy, I've been watching the Amazon Lord of the Rings lately, so I've got Tolkien on the mind. Um, and Tolkien in Lord of the Rings offers, um, I think, these really wise words where he writes, It's not our part to master all the tides of the world, but to do what is in us for the succor of those years wherein we are, ups we are set uprooting the evil in the fields we know, so that those who live after may have clean earth to till. Faithfulness in Jesus's kingdom means cultivation, not control. To plant new seeds of life in the dead earth of whatever plot of land we inhabit, believing in faith that the mustard seed we plant through the mysterious workings of God becomes the universal kingdom where the nations of the world can come and find their true place. And so we live into the vision of Acts as we step forward into the future as God's church here in Philadelphia. Please pray with me. God, we are thankful for these words from your book of Acts that encourages us um, to see the story of Paul, the story of the apostles of continuing with us today. Give us courage, God, to be in mission in the world, to reach all the ends of the earth, that we, through faithful presence, might build your kingdom into the kingdom that you want it to be. We ask your grace upon us. In Christ's name, amen.